Well, today we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. We're getting near the end, and today we're looking at sort of a continuation of what we went over last week in chapter 17 by looking at chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19. But before we dig into that passage, I, I want us to think about a question. And that question is this, what comes to your mind? How do you feel when you think of the word judgment? My guess is that word judgment probably brings to mind all sorts of different things. I suppose typically when I think of judgment, I, I think of, well, images of people looking down on me or uh, nitpicking how I'm dressed or how I talk. I think of the temptation to say to people that would do such a thing, who are you to judge me? I think of having a moral failure and people looking down at me as if I'm worse than them. Or maybe what comes to mind is, you know, standing in a courtroom literally before a judge and hearing the judge declare to me gavel being pounded down loudly in probably a British voice, guilty. None of that is the kind of stuff that we want to face in this life. And frankly, I think that's why the word judgment can tend to be associated with negative things first and foremost. But there is also a positive connotation to the word judgment too. I mean, if you think about it, going back to that same courtroom, is there anything that shows utter relief maybe more in our culture than when somebody is declared to be not guilty? Immediately, they're hugging their lawyer and their family and there's oftentimes tears as they're declared to be innocent of the crimes for which they were accused. Or even think about having some of your work being evaluated by somebody and instead of them being critical of you or criticizing it, they give you the attaboy and they tell you that you did a great job. There's something, there's something very, very um, enlivening and freeing about being judged that way. And so the point is up front, when we think of the word judgment, we should think of it in terms of both something that can be terrifying and something that can be really freeing. With that by way of backdrop, as I said, we're in Revelation 18, going into 19 today. And if you were with us the last time in chapter 17, you know that I basically made the case uh, that what was being depicted for us there was God's judgment against the religious empire of Jerusalem, which historically was fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. Indeed, John opens up chapter 18 with sort of a recap of why that judgment came upon the city, saying in verse 1, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, 
and the kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Again, this is sort of a recap of the stuff that we read back in chapter 17, if you were with us then. It was a description of the largesse and the, frankly, frankly idolatrous ways that the city of Jerusalem was behaving, and that that was why the judgment of God was coming upon that city. Ultimately, all of that idolatry manifesting in their rejection of Jesus, which causes Jesus to predict their downfall. So, so that's, that's why the judgment came. Well, today in chapter 18 and 19, we're going to see various responses to God's judgment. We're going to see three responses primarily as we go through the chapter uh, or go through the text. We're going to see the church's response first. We're going to see the world's response. And then finally, we're going to see heaven's response. So, but before we do that, let's pause for a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. Speak now through your very imperfect and feeble servant's lips so that your people might be edified and strengthened through the hearing of your word by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the responses to God's judgment. First of all, we have the church. John writes, Revelation 18, verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So here in the sort of opening segment of the chapter, a voice from heaven speaks in John's vision, describing once again the reason for the judgment coming upon Jerusalem with vivid language. We won't go into detail about all that for the sake of time, but you just heard why it indeed did come again. One note I do want to just hearken your memory back to, if you remember last time, we noted that the woman here being condemned is really kind of a literal and a figurative woman. It turns out that at the time of the destruction of the temple, there was a very treacherous princess named Princess Berenice, who was indeed committing immorality and adultery with, in fact, Titus, the Roman general who would eventually come and destroy Jerusalem. So there is a literal sense in which this is fulfilled. But of course, we also talked about the fact that this princess figure or this, this queen figure here also represents the city as a whole and the religious empire that was ruling Jerusalem at the time. Indeed, the religious empire thought that God was on their side and they refused to reckon with the reality that he wasn't. And so judgment comes. But what is the church told to do in response to the judgment? That's what I want to focus on. Well, the church is told right from the beginning, come 
out. Why is it the church is told to come out of this city? Yes, it's to avoid the plagues. It does mention that, that are going to come upon the city. So God doesn't want his people to endure all that's coming. But there's a, there's a broader reason, a more important reason that's mentioned here. And that is, lest the church take part in her sins. Lest the church take part in her sins. Now that's interesting, and I want to point out two things about that that I think apply very much to us still today. First of all, we ought to recognize from other places in Scripture that this command to come out is not merely meant for the people living around Jerusalem or in the Roman Empire at that time, but in fact is an instruction from God for God's people to some extent for all time. So, 1 Peter 1.16, has God saying to his people, be holy as I am holy, be set apart as I am set apart. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, chapter 6, verse 17, says, be separate from them. Indeed, the meaning of the Greek word church, ecclesia, is literally, it literally means called out ones. Now, does that mean that we are then meant to live in sort of Christian ghettos in which we have nothing to do with the world around us, that we are to try and flee and escape from all the world's activities in order to be faithful? No. That's abundantly clear from the testimony of the rest of Scripture. We're called to love and serve our neighbors. That's not really up for debate. And so that means we have to still stay in the world somehow. We can't simply escape and, uh, and flee and hunker down away from all the problems. But what's meant here when we're told to come out is that we should not, what well, we should seek not to be carried along by the world, but to be carried along instead by the Spirit. And why is that? Because the voice from heaven warns us we're too prone to taking part in the sins of the world. So yes, we don't come out from the world, we don't separate ourselves from the world and what the world's doing because we think we're better than them, which I think is often a misperception, sometimes um, sort of displayed by the church, often a misperception from the world about the church when it doesn't involve itself in the activities of the world all the time, but it's not. It's not because the church goes out with some sort of holier-than-thou, I'm-better-than-you complex. No, in fact, it's the recognition of humility that says, I'm just as prone to falling into destructive patterns that I see the world falling into if I'm not careful. And so I need to maintain a distance from this. Again, it doesn't mean escaping the world, but it means recognizing and being discerning by the Word of God what is of the world and what is of the Spirit. That's what it means to come out in our world today. As the hymn writer says, Come thou fount of every blessing, one of my favorite lines because of its brutal honesty, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
so too we ought to recognize that tendency within us and not entangle ourselves as paul instructs christians in one letter flee so john says the church's response to the judgment is not is not to deceive ourselves into thinking we can handle it or that we're powerful enough in our own strength to sort of deal with it no 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 but to come out of it saying there but by the grace of god go i there's a posture of humility in this separating, in this coming out. It is not a posture of haughtiness or pride, but it's a recognition that I'm just as prone to doing things destructive like Jerusalem did at that time. So that's the first thing. Come out. The church's response is to judgment. Get away from it. The second response is, of course, the world's response. Now, that's basically the rest of chapter 18. I'm not going to read all the rest of chapter 18, again, for the sake of time. But I will read, beginning at verse 9, at least some of the church's response. It says this, or excuse me, not the church's response, the world's response. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. Remember? Last time in chapter 17, we noted that this was both literally and figuratively true, just to go over that again. What does it say they'll do? They will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Indeed, it is true that when judgment came, the world responded with great mourning and sadness over it. And it is true that it came very quickly to Jerusalem. But as we read on through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see that the reason for such mourning from the world and from the, quote, kings of the earth here and others is not because, well, they had such a love for the citizens of Jerusalem. It's not because they had such care for the people. No, it's much more base. It's much more earthy than that. If you continue on, verse 11, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat. And I could go on and on. There's a list of all the things that they used to be able to get, buy, and sell in the, the empire there. What does it say is happening? The fruit for which your soul has longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. As you go on through the rest of the chapter, what you're going to find is that the reason the mourning is happening, the reason there's great tears of the judgment coming down, is not because of care for the people, but it's because of the loss of wealth and security. They've lost their comfort. They've lost all the things that they were looking to for meaning in this life. 
frankly, I've seen even amidst those who are getting older and closer to death or dying, the same kind of grief over the loss of wealth and material possessions. I've known people that were exceedingly wealthy that when they got closer to the end of their life, started looking at all they had accumulated and wondered if any of it was really worth anything at all. I remember one time I was sitting in an East Village cafe and I met an older gentleman sitting next to me there who struck up a conversation with me and soon came to find out that he was quite wealthy. And apparently he was, you know, quite proud of what he had done in his life. <coughs> Excuse me. Quite proud of what he had done in his life. I mean, he, at one point he, he brought out, he had a suitcase with him, a little briefcase, opened up the briefcase and he showed me him himself on various magazine covers that were about finance. He was in finance and he had made just a ton of money. And he showed me some of the pictures of things that he had accumulated, just abundant, abundant wealth that, you know, you tend to only see in places like Manhattan and a few other spots around the world. And so he was sort of boasting about this and I was a little bit in awe of all that he had accumulated. And then I'll never forget, he closed the briefcase and he got sort of really pensive and kind of serious. And I asked him what was going on in his head. And he said, you know, the reality is I've got all this stuff, but it, the longer I go on, it seems like it's all for nothing. Because I was so devoted to my work and so devoted to money that I never fell in love, that I never had time for a relationship. I was so busy and so devoted to my job and the money that I didn't even attend my own mother's funeral. And now, as I look at my life all alone with all these things, I wonder, was it worth it? Have I wasted my life? Indeed, God warns about that reality to us. Jesus tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And that if we invest in things of this world where moth and rust destroy, that ultimately we're going to be very disappointed. And that's exactly what happens to the people here in Revelation 18. They look at this city that they had invested so much time and energy and money into, that they had gotten so much from, and they mourn because it's all for nothing. They had built their life on the sandy foundation of wealth and it always ends up being washed away. And one day, as Revelation shows, it will be washed up for good. So that's the world's response to judgment is great sadness over all that has been lost, all the things that they had built their life upon. Well then lastly, we have heaven's response. So church's response is to come out the world's response is to mourn, and heaven's response, well, heaven's response is to be filled with praise. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Yes, heaven's response to God's justice is endless praise for the faithfulness of God to right the wrongs that this world has inflicted upon itself. Now, it may seem a bit strange to you to think of heaven filled with exuberant joy over such destruction. But again, imagine yourself in a courtroom in which someone who has killed your spouse or your child or someone deeply close to you is finally found guilty. There can be a certain joy in seeking and seeing justice be served. But of course, the justice being served on this heavenly plane is vastly better because heavenly justice is perfect justice. And this justice has the ability to finally make up for all the pain and sadness that this fallen world is capable of. And yet, as much as we do praise God for his justice, and we do, this passage doesn't merely end with a praise for God's justice, but will go on to depict something even more glorious, and that is his grace to those who deserved such justice. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll stop there. Yes, as much as we celebrate the justice of God that will one day prevail we celebrate all the more that he has found a way to make it so that we who deserve justice are instead made into his bride. Through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ, we are told in Scripture he has purified all who believe so that they are now qualified to be his perfect marriage partner. We know that the bride referenced here is in fact the church because it's called the bride throughout the rest of the New Testament. He says at the end, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast. Well, the question that we need to answer in closing today is who is invited to this marriage feast? Who throughout all of scripture is invited to join God at this heavenly banquet? 
Well, if we look at the parables and we look at the rest of Revelation, the answer is crystal clear. The answer is you are. And I mean all of you, every single person on this planet, because we're all worthy of justice. We're all worthy of wrath. We've all earned condemnation. And yet God is so gracious to you because of the justice that was meted out on his son on the cross for you, that he can say to you, instead of facing the justice you deserve, accept my son's justice taken for you, and I'll declare you to be a beautiful, spotless, forgiven, righteous bride. You are invited to the feast. Yes, you, with all your shortcomings and failures, all your struggles and your neediness, you, he has seen fit to qualify for this feast. So you will not face the justice detailed for us in this passage. Yes, he calls to you and I today, come out. He's still calling. The very fact that he hasn't ended this thing yet shows you he is still calling. Come out and follow me. Repent and believe and be transformed and be forgiven and be declared spotless in my sight. You don't have to mourn when the world burns because, well, that's where you find your only hope. That's not what has to happen to you. You can hope in one that transcends this world and all that it can offer. You can join the heavenly host in celebration when he one day renews all things. Jesus says today, turn to me that you may have life. And one day we will feast together forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for, for this promise that we hang our faith on. May you create more of this faith as the word is proclaimed. May you help us to see your plan above our plans. May you help us to live in the forgiveness that's been won for us. And now, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.